This is the Organizational Health Advantage Podcast with Keith Hadley and James Felton, Principal Consultants at Table Group. They're in the business of coaching leaders to build strategic focus and cultural alignment that leads to amazing results. This podcast is for leaders who are looking to increase productivity and morale while decreasing politics, confusion, and unwanted turnover. Welcome to the Org Health Advantage. Welcome back to the Org Health Podcast. I'm James Felton. And I am Keith Hadley. And I am, we are so excited about today's guest, Hugh McCutcheon, a storied, legendary volleyball coach, gold medal winner. But I'm excited, James, about how excited you are about talking to Hugh. Tell us about his background. Oh my gosh. Well, I've known Hugh for a while and we actually played against each other when he was a volleyball player at BYU and I was at UC Irvine. And then he just took off in the coaching ranks. He was an assistant at BYU for their men's team. He coached overseas. He came back and coached, was an assistant for the USA men's national team. And they got fourth when he was an assistant. And then he took over as head coach for the men's national team from 2005 to 2008. And they won the gold medal. He then coached the women after that, the women's national team. And they won the silver medal in 2012. After that, he took over the program at University of Minnesota for the women's team there. And during his, I believe it was 11 years, they went to the national final four three times, went to the elite eight eight times. And so he's had a storied career in coaching. And now they've developed a unique role for him at the University of Minnesota, where he is basically uh, an assistant athletic director in support of the rest of the coaches there. And so he's actually helping their coaches develop and, and become even better coaches. And, and I think that's a great program. And I'm fired up about that because my parents went to the University of Minnesota. My son went to the University of Minnesota. I grew up going to those games. I can actually sing the University of Minnesota fight song, which I will not do. But let's dive in. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. So let's get after it and hear, hear from Hugh McCutcheon. Hugh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, James. Appreciate it. You know, you're you're here and, and we've got Keith on the mic as well. Keith, how are you? I'm doing great, James. Real honor to be here today and an honor to be here with you. Yeah. Likewise. Yeah. Looking forward Thank to it, so Keith. Much. Yeah. Here we go. So so Hugh, one of the things that I, I find remarkable in, in your story, and it, it's true with a, a lot of people that I know in your circle, is you played at BYU and coached at BYU. And I would say you really helped get that program on the map, by the way. And so I'm curious, what was it about Carl McGowan's coaching that spawned so many other coaches? Like, you know, I could think of about five right off at the top of my head, and, and that would probably be only, you know, a, a third at least of the, <laughs> at most of, of how many coaches came out of there. So what was it about Carl that just inspired so many of you to be become coaches. Well, I can only sp- speak for myself, but you're right. Th- th- there were a lot of people of that generation that that got into this, and you know, I think the thing that Carl brought brought to it was obviously this idea of academic rigor around a, a teaching method, in particular. Uh, having been a, a modeling professor um, and then applying you know, that research and those lessons learned into the realm of coaching volleyball, it was, 
I think probably pretty unique and very compelling to be uh, in a gym or in an environment where there were very clear expectations around, you know, what, what we were trying to do and how we were trying to achieve it. That connection maybe between process and outcome uh, was more clearly defined. So I think for many of us, uh, you know, those early years, we, we weren't great. Uh, it got better, you know, but we weren't very for good. Sure. We were young and we didn't know what we were doing, but just the idea to be in a gym with the teaching piece of it. And then I think probably each of us, again, a little bit speculative, but each of us taking that and, and kind of interpreting it through, through our, whatever coaching method or teaching method or whatever, you know, in, in a way that maybe took those principles and applied them in a way that worked, worked for, for us. Because I think that's at the end of the day, that, that is a really important thing. That idea that, that, that there are principles that can guide this process of uh, skill acquisition and those those principles have to be, you know, expressed through you, James, or you, Keith. You know, you, you don't try to do it someone else's way, but the principles don't change. Their application does, but the, the principles are there. So I think that was probably part of the attraction. I think that's, that's why uh, a lot of people were attracted to that. You mentioned something early that I want to double click on because we talk about it so often with our clients, and that is setting clear expectations. Yeah, yeah. And, and I would imagine that was around, you know, how we played the game, how, you know, how we behaved, uh, how we practiced. Can you talk mm -hmm. about how he set those clear expectations and, and what those were about? Well, I think early on, I mean, I, when I arrived there, it was the second year that they had been in the NCAA program. Yeah. And so I think most of the expectations were around skills and, and systems, and I think probably to Kyle's credit, you know, we, we didn't know much. And so we were, we were all trying to play catch up. I think his, his knowledge uh, and maybe his, his uh, idea of what he was trying to set in place was probably well and truly beyond what our capacity was at that time. But as, as I, you know, played for a few years and then I went away and played overseas and then came back and started coaching with him, that idea of expectations was wrapped into, many more facets of the program. So it became not just skills and systems, but, you know, here's what we're trying to achieve. Here's how we're, how, how we're going to do that. Here's, you know, here's kind of a, a very clear path of, of achievement as well. So it seemed, um, and rightfully so that, that, that idea of clear expectations had been wrapped around all of the program at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And I would imagine it was around behaviors around like how we were going to, Again, like our strategy, what we thought was important in, in terms of competing and, you know, how we wanted to run our offense. But it was probably all encompassing, right? Yeah, I think initially the behavioral piece was was not as clearly defined. I think, you know, during that time, there was myself and obviously Carl was was running it. I was there. Troy Tanner was there. And he was a really oh. valuable piece of the puzzle as well because of his experience with the 88 uh, group and, and being a gold medalist in, in Seoul. Rob Browning was there for, for a while too, and, and he bought a lot of really good stuff. So there were just, you know, possibly by circumstance, who knows, but there were just a real, lot of really good people that were, that were there that could add, add to this, this paradigm, I guess. I think, I think, you know, it, it was, uh, it was not a finished product, but, but by the time we got into the late, 90s and early 2000s, it was getting to be pretty good. I think not, not that it's formulaic, but we had a lot of really good things in place around all of it. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I don't want this question to feel like a curveball, but I always think of a coach and the team, and I assume the team means the players, and that's what everybody thinks. But what you're also describing is the team being the team of coaches. I, I'm just curious what yeah. you what you learned there about running a team of coaches by being on a team of coaches that you later translated into your head coaching. Well, yeah, I was an assistant for Carl, and I was an assistant for Doug. Doug Beal, who coached the, the uh, I was part of the 2004 quadrennial in Athens. And at one point, Doug had coached the USA men to a gold medal in 1984. And, and I think one of the things you learn is, as an assistant is that, that you're part of something bigger than yourselves. I hope you still hold on to that when you're the head coach, actually. <laughs> but this idea that you can find different ways to add value so that you can support the head coach to do their job and and that, yeah, you're an integral part of it because you're a much stronger conduit between, you know, the athletes and the head coach. I mean, and you're afforded the luxury of, of being able to make suggestions. You don't really have to make too many decisions. And so that's a nice space to be in, too. You can say whatever you want. It's not, you know, it's, it's up to the head coach to kind of do it. But that that communication piece, that support piece, that, you know, learning, I, I, I got to do a ton of different things for those different coaches. And it was it was a great way to learn and, and expand and, and um, broaden my understanding of what it was to do this profession. So, yeah, it was cool. I, I, and you are. You're part of a, a team within a team. No question. Yeah. Hugh, I, I love that because we work with executive teams. And so often people on the executive team just get locked into their opinion their idea and wanting to be right and wanting their idea or opinion to be chosen mm. and followed and 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 their ego sometimes gets in the way of of doing what's best for the organization or compromising or getting on the same page about a decision that was made that they didn't come up with you know it wasn't right. their idea talk about that as an assistant coach i mean you just brought it up how do you Clearly, you're all smart. You've mentioned some great coaches. You mentioned some great assistant coaches who all have great experience playing and coaching at high levels. Talk about bringing something to the table, committed to the idea, but then maybe not getting your way. And it's like, hey, I can just make a suggestion and I don't have to like make the decision. You seem to be pretty humble about that. And what was that culture like? Well, I think it's just the reality of of the way groups should well the high functioning groups should operate and and what I mean by that is the rising tide lifts all the boats, so not yeah. no one of us is going to do this alone and and even if i could i'm going to make an assumption here, but generally within the corporate space, you know the next step on the ladder is supposed to lead to the next step on the ladder. So maybe there's this idea that I've got to manage up or manage down, or I've got a politic or whatever. Uh, no point was I ever planning on being the head coach of the USA national team. I mean, that was so far beyond anything I could have ever imagined or dreamed. And, and so to that end, uh, it was always about, you know, how can, how can I help? How can we do this? How, how great is it that I get to be in the room? You know, just that kind of stuff. And yeah, as, as it went on and I was afforded these opportunities, then, then the other stuff became a reality, but it was never like, Hey, this is a stepping stone to this. It afforded me the opportunity to just be where I was and try to make it as, as successful as I could be. And, and I kind of knew like, Hey, if we're all successful, then that'll lead to more stuff for everyone. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think in the corporate space, we tend to get a little bit 
Well, we get so worried about our piece of the pie that we forget that we're supposed to grow the pie, you know? Yeah. 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 And I, yeah. the one thing that I think is, is really important that I've learned is that, first of all, it's, it's not personal. We're all just trying to help the team. That's that. And if we can all trust that that's the, the key motive in this, then we're going to be in a good space. But one of the things we know is where everyone thinks alike, no one's thinking very much. So having agreement doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to shift the needle very much. You might just have people that are saying yes. And uh, so there's no real value add dialogue or interaction that can occur. So I know for me, what's most important is alignment. Uh, you know, we want principle alignment. If if we have to debate the fact that we live on planet Earth and the laws of physics apply, then then we're probably not going to get very far. But if we can get past gravity and get into, okay, maybe we want to run this drill this way today, or maybe we want to do it that way. And we can have, we can debate that. You know, I don't profess to have all the answers, right. but that healthy debate is good for everybody. And I think a lot of people see that as, conflict, but it's not. It's just discussion. And you need that. You need that to keep pushing yourself forward and your organization. Yeah. But anyway, Keith, yeah. you were going to say. No, I, I I was just, as you were talking, I, what, what comes through is your your joy of being in the room and just that, that humility of like, I can't believe I'm here. And <laughs> and I just wonder, yeah. like, how, how have you retained that? And have you noticed other leaders that lost that and they step into the room thinking like, I'm all that. I should be here. I, I'm just curious how you well, see that. Yeah, I think on the uh, to the first part of your question, uh, I've always been about these experiences. Like it's it, there's never been like I've never got too wrapped up in any kind of status or or whatever. I mean, I can't change my history. You know, I mean, I, I own that and, and I'm proud of what I've got to be a part of. But it was always this idea of like, hey, as coaches, we're service providers and the service we provide is trying to help these this group of people to become the best they can be on the court, in the classroom, whatever it is, depending on the space that you're in. So I always took the perspective that it was never about me. It was just always up to me. As in, you know, if if if, if we're going to do this job of of coaching or leading or w w managing or whatever we want to call the, the, the corollary, the parallel, that the responsibility is ours. And to that end, we have to, we have to do our job. We have to help these people to become better. So the pitfall in all of this is ego, right? I mean, that's, that's the temptation and especially in coaching, which is so strange because, you know, people call you coach. It's not like I go to my athletics director and call him director, you know, Hey, director Coyle, how are you today? I mean, it's, it's weird. Or you go to, Hey, vice president, so-and-so what's going on in the corporate space. It just doesn't happen. And yet, there's this kind of weird power and authority that gets given to coaches. You know, successful coaches have this kind of uh, almost mystical quality to them. And the reality, of course, is that they're human like the rest of us. But but the temptation, because that power or that that status or whatever you want to call it is given, it's not necessarily earned. The, the temptation is that it becomes who you are versus this is what I do. You know, like I'm someone who – I'm Hugh who coaches versus – I'm Hugh the coach, right? I mean, that, that that's the pitfall. And once ego becomes involved, then yeah, it compromises the ability to play well with others. You know, now it's about you. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about that transition that you made. You know, you referred to it already. You were the assistant of the men's national team under Doug Beal and then put your hat in the ring and, and you get selected as head coach for the next squad yeah. uh, from 2005 to 2008. 
I don't presume at all that while you were an assistant coach, you were thinking of like, okay, if I were the head coach, I'd be doing things this way. That you know, if yeah. you if you thought that, you'd share it, you know. But but clearly, when you became the head coach, you made some changes, right? Yes. How did that evolve in your mind? Yeah, and I'm just as you're asking the question. Sorry, my my whatever look is more like yeah. How did that all go down? Not not <laughs> challenging whether that was a thing. So you're right. I, I didn't think about being the coach of the team until very late in the in the quad, and even maybe talking at the Olympics in Athens, where um, uh, Marv was talking to me about it, and and a couple of other people, and very like, hey, you should think about doing this. And I was like, uh, you know, like r- really. Um, hmm. And, and so then I was trying to wrap my head around that and thought, okay, uh, you know, let, let's, let's look at that more closely. And you're right. It, 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 it wasn't something that I just, one thought I was entitled to, or, or two, I, I didn't take that lightly. Like it wasn't like, uh, oh yeah, I'll just go coach the national team. Why wouldn't I, you know? Um, <laughs> By the it, way, it, can we pause real quick there? Marv is Marv Dunphy. He coached the 88 Olympic team to a gold medal. Uh, He coached, I think, five national championship teams at Pepperdine. And he had worked with just about every national team and been to every Olympics with them for, I don't even, I don't even know how long. Yeah. So when he talked to you about it, that's clearly a big influence (laughs) and somebody with a lot of gravitas saying, you should think about this. Yeah. It got my attention. That's for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, then then you start. Okay, well, what would that look like? And all, all I thought was it was again. Okay, if if you if you do this, one, you're afforded a chance to go to the mountaintop. How fortunate are you? I mean, not everyone gets a chance to to climb that mountain. And then, two, you've got to sing. Well, well, what what value can I add? I mean, where's what, what, I guess what's the competitive advantage you could play to, or what what can you do to really shift the needle? Because Obviously, the team was good, but but the expectations were high, and and uh, we all lived in the shadows of those teams in the eighties, and and for better or worse, you know, I mean, and and so it was like, well, yeah, and and maybe even culturally around being the U.S. team, you know, it's not like we're number four, you know, that's not what USA says. USA says we're number one, and so yeah. you you got to be driving towards that idea of like, well, how can you really get onto the podium. How can you have a chance to be the last team standing? And so as I was going through all of that, yeah, that, that helped kind of crystallize maybe a path forward. And and when I interviewed, I, I didn't, because Doug knew me, obviously we worked together for the last three years. I, I didn't go into that interview with any presumption or, or any feeling of entitlement. I, I wore a suit and I had a, had a very clear plan that I'd, I'd written and, and here's all the things and, and tried to show him like, Hey, I've got a very clear idea of how I want to do this. And, and these are the people I want to have involved. And these are the, you know, things we need to do and so on and so forth. So I was, I was very serious about pursuing it once I'd made my mind up to pursue it. I would just want to ask, was that odd? Like having to like, again, kind of back to my previous question of like, Hey, Doug, we just worked together for three years, but here's my plan to do things differently. Well, no, it was well. First of all, it wasn't like it was reinventing the wheel. I mean, principle alignment, okay. different application. Okay. 
but I would say, yeah, I think he, well, we should ask him, but I, I hope he appreciated the <laughs> fact that I, I didn't show up in my, my shorts and t-shirts sure. or my sweats, you For know, sure. that I, I saw the responsibility as, as a very serious one. And then after, uh, I got the job one, one, well, and maybe even, I'm trying to think maybe even as part of the interview process, I was really clear about Doug, is this like, are you going to be, cause he, he take, he was going to take over as running USA volleyball as the CEO. And so I was like, Doug, do you want me to like, is this your team that I'm running or something? Or does it get to be my team? Like, how does it work? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I, it's our team, right? It's USA's team, but, but right. uh, are you Geppetto pulling the strings or are you going to give me the freedom to, to do my job? And, and because I always think it's really important to man, you know, managing expectations, you got to manage the expectations of the people that you work for yeah. and make sure there's real clarity in terms of what, what they want you to do. And he was great. He's like, yeah, it's your deal. I'm done. Yeah. Go for it. You know? So it worked out just fine. Yeah, I, I'm so curious. How closely was your plan that you presented that day to what you actually ended up doing? Because sometimes the reality is far from what you plan. I think the, the there were a lot of things there that that uh, worked out, and a few that didn't. But you know, one of the big things we needed to do was get out of Colorado Springs, and uh, we were able to make that happen and get down to Anaheim. And you know, we, we I had a list of people that I wanted involved, and and we we got a lot of those people on board. There was a definite expression of of how we wanted to execute the skills and systems of the game. I think we played pretty true to that. You know, I, I think the the more transformative document was the the mission with the team than it was necessarily the plan with Doug. But um, I mean, that thing ended up taking on a life. And you know, we were saying before we got to recording the idea that you know, when you're in an Olympic cycle, it's a four year thing. So your missions actually become your vision. I mean, those things become really closely aligned because of the, the long runway you have, but yeah. yeah. I, I know James, you're eager to jump into that. I, I, I just want to double click immediately. Like, is that, did you have like a middle of the night aha moment? Like, you know what we need? We need a mission. Or, <laughs> or had, had you been thinking about that for a while? It's like, finally I can do this. Like just walk through the clarity that you had, not with well, the mission, uh, we, but the fact that we need a mission and we like, just tell us about that. Well, we'd, um, at one point when, when I was at BYU, we, I, I went to business school and, and, uh, was doing an executive MBA while I was there because initially I did a, a, a master's degree in exercise science and statistics with the idea of going on and getting a PhD and all that stuff. And then I was, so I was coaching as a means to that academic end. And, and then I realized coaching is actually a better fit than academia. And then I also realized coaching's a very fickle business and we're all an ankle sprain away from unemployment. So I have better have a real qualification to fall back on, you know, so that's why I went to business school. But within that, there's a lot of talk about how to frame goals and how to do all that stuff. And certainly with Carl, there was always discussion around ways we should do that. And at that time, and in Utah, you know, Covey was a big thing and, and Carl had his planner like everyone else in Utah. And, and, <laughs> you know, so the, the idea of trying to frame goals and, and create a, a narrative around them, create mission was not, was not foreign. I just think with the national team, it, it's something that had never been, well, at least within my time there. And maybe from what I'd heard anecdotally prior to that, maybe a quarter or two prior to that, it had never been as clearly articulated as we chose to do it. So what I, yeah, what I was going through the first few months was one, we, we, we have, we got to take care of today. 
because <laughs> we were playing right away. But also, we, the, the first year of the quad, at least at that time in the international calendar, was kind of a throwaway. There wasn't a lot going on. That So not all the guys were back in the gym, at least not the, 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 the best athletes at that point or the best players maybe. And so once we got everyone back, then it seemed like it was – it was important to just kind of frame, like, well, what are we doing here? Like, you know, what, what, is it enough just to say we're USA and we're going to try to be good? It, it, it just felt like we needed some clarity of, of purpose and intent because what I hoped was that would lead to a trickle down in terms of the behaviors that we needed to do adopt to support that. Yeah, I know uh, with our clients, when we mention things like mission, vision, or values, uh, the most common response we get is the eye roll. Yeah, it's super uh, cringy. I, 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 yeah. yeah. I, so what what did you do differently <laughs> that made that process actually something that, that was valuable as opposed to cringy? Yeah. Well, the problem is it just gets thrown around so much that it ends up being so cliche and yeah. – and, and I think the, the thing that gave it power, even though I would say there was a, a delayed return on investment in terms of understanding the power of that thing, was everyone was in the room. Everyone had a voice. Everyone had a chance to contribute. And then everyone signed off on it and said, yeah, this is what we're committing to. And so even that public expression of commitment to the goal and to the behaviors around it, well, that means that you have to – kind of honor that you can't say that you're trying to be the best in the world at what you do and then act against that and somehow think you're you're at the very least not being duplicitous yeah you know yeah. so so it just became this instant accountability thing that I, and i'm not saying like our lives changed right away i mean it, it was a slow burn and, and you know in the book one of the interviews is with reed pretty who was a really yeah. really good outside hitter in 2008. I think he was the best in the world in his position, but Reed would say he didn't get it until the medal was around his neck. And then he was like, Oh man, now I understand why we did all that stuff four years ago. So yeah, yeah. It, it, it just, yeah. I think anytime you can have clarity of intention and purpose and all that stuff, then you can build into how you're going to do that. And, and so figuring out the why and, and, and maybe even determining the motives and then you can figure out the how. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, d just double talk about your process because, you know, in, in your book, you kind of walk through the process. And I think a lot of leaders would say, yeah, well, we have a mission statement, but you did something different with yours. You didn't you didn't come in and announce it. What did you do? Well, just in terms of how, how you formed your mission statement and where it came from. Well, G getting we the guys started, together at a hotel. Yeah. Yeah. We, we were just going to go down and, and play in this tournament in Brazil, again, it was, it was just kind of this thing that was created, I believe, <laughs> America's cup, uh, in volleyball and down in Brazil. And we were, we were doing our due diligence relative to this idea. We were going to shift out of Colorado Springs. We city of Anaheim had, had, um, given us a couple of weeks to go down there and train and test it out, which was cool. So one of the afternoons we took a day off of practice and, and, um, got, got in a meeting room at, at the Anaheim Hilton and, and got into it. And, and the first thing was trying to just get the team to articulate or express what it was we were trying to do. And I was pushing very hard for the idea of we're going to try to win the Olympics. No one else was pushing for that. <laughs> so, you know, I know goals are supposed to be smart and, and that was absolutely on the, on the verge of being realistic and attainable 
but it it was possible. I mean, we were there. We we were fourth in Athens, so it's not like we were chopped liver. You know, we could play, but but the space between being fourth and being first was was pretty significant at that time. So maybe wrapped wrapped up in all of that is also the very real uh, possibility that you may not qualify uh, because there's. 222 teams that play one gets to go because they're the host country and the other 11 spots, you, you have to qualify. And, you know, we going into Athens, we beat Cuba 15, 13 in the, in the third. And it was extremely harrowing and exciting and enthralling, but it was nerve wracking as all get out. And you're so close, you know, you're two, one French fry away from one point here, one point there from, <laughs> from four years going down the drain. So it's, yeah. The idea that we put it out there was probably, yeah, it was a bit of a strange. How about that? So, so Hugh, a few things from your book, Championship Behaviors, that I really appreciated. One was you actually named the, the, the mission statement and the values. And why I appreciated that personally was because you probably don't remember this, but you and I had a phone call when you were with the men's national team and, you know, I was just, you were generous with your time. I was trying to learn from you. And uh, I said, Oh, you know, I heard about this mission statement. Could you share what it is? He's like, and you said, well, I can tell you how we got there, but I can't share with you what it is. That's private. Yep, That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. We, we kept it. We kept it uh, in house. Like it was, we, I wanted it to feel like it was ours and it was kind of this, um, like the sacred thing, <laughs> like we got to protect it, you know? And so we referenced it and we lived it, but no one else got to have the the special source. You know, we, we kept it in house for sure. For sure. Yeah. So I, I loved it. And then I also loved your interviews in the book and, and, you know, you mentioned the one with Reed, but what came out of that, what he mentioned was like, it was on the whiteboard all the time. And you folks, uh, at least pointed to it or addressed it. And so can you talk about like, because so many businesses do this mission and value statement and then hardly ever refer to it. Yeah. How, yeah. how integral was it for you folks? Well, I think you're right in the, in the business world, it tends to be kind of an HR checklist, you know, right. like, Oh, we got our mission. Cool. Oh, and here's some values. Yeah. These are great words. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it, it's, it's, it's about living that versus just saying that. And and so e even that whole idea right there, that the space between what you say and what you do has to be really small. That's what we're trying to drive. So if we're in practice and we've got on the board, Hey, we're trying to be Olympic champions in 2008 and we're sucking right now. Well, it doesn't feel like you're honoring that commitment. So it, it affords, that, that daily re reminder, I, I felt like, and, and it wasn't overt. It wasn't like it was this thing right. that we were, you know, purposefully doing. We just, we just wanted it to be a part of the deal that it, that it, that it was there. And we, we didn't reference it every day, but it was around every, I mean, people could see it, you know, we just had it on the board, just a piece of paper stuck there. Yeah. But where, what it helps to do is it helps connect intention to action. And, what tends to happen when you have a, a you know a mission and it's it's not so it's not referenced is that it becomes this um, vague idea of something that we hope to achieve, but we're not really connecting what we have to do today to help achieve it. And and I think that idea of connecting intention to action is now 
more concretely expressed in this idea of, of the goals and the way that my conversations with Anders Ericsson were able to find find this kind of model of, of bringing in deliberate practice concepts and how they can be applied to the day-to-day. So I, I've tried to build on that, but, but that's what, what it was all about, just to, to make sure that we didn't forget why we were there. Because it's easy. We all got stuff worried about, but if you see it, then maybe it just pulls you back into where you need to be. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. I'm loving this conversation. So thanks again for joining us, Hugh. Yeah, I'm curious, Hugh, now that you're at University of Minnesota, and I don't want to switch gears away from the Olympic team because that's, James, there's so much more to explore. But how have you been able to bring some of that philosophy there? I mean, I know now that I'm listening to you, I'm just wondering if like PJ Fleck on his day one was like, hey, what what should I do? And you're like, you should come up with something really cool, like row the boat. (laughs) Or or did he join the team knowing that he should do this? Like maybe talk a little bit about how you've been able to influence coaches. PJ had all his stuff coming in, okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, one of the one of the things I, I I wanted to be really clear about, and and listen, I'm whatever three three weeks in, so it's not like uh, I know exactly how all this is going to play out. But one of the things I was very clear about with all of the coaches that I met is I'm not here to tell them how to do their job, right? That's yeah. I, I don't know how to how to coach football or how to coach swimming or whatever, but I am here to help, help them do their job. And and that's as a a resource in terms of skill learning, skill acquisition, skill application, or if that's about being an advocate or if that's about being a sounding board or, or um, I don't know, talking about recruiting or, or how to compete and managing the big moments and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I've, I've had some experience and and they're, they're different experiences, but I, I think it, uh, you know, it's okay to see things through a different lens, especially if it's, yeah. if it's a lens that has, has a consistent history of, of sustained success yeah. in, in all the different ways that success can be defined. So, so it's not a hard sell. I'm not, I'm not in there saying, Hey, you have to do it this way. I, I just want to get in there. And, and I think coaching can be a pretty lonely space for a lot of coaches. I think it can be an Island as can leadership. And so I'm more like a like a neutral advocate. You know, I'm not quite admin. I'm not a coach. I'm kind of somewhere in between where I can maybe facilitate communications on both sides, but more importantly, be a value add for the coaches, try to help them and, and you know, drive their success. Yeah. 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 And that's, by the way, after having years of success coaching the women's team at Minnesota and taking them to, was it three Final Fours? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and, and during that time, you know, of course, a, a program is going to ebb and flow, but yours ebbed and flow at a really high level. <laughs> yeah, I think we went to eight or nine Elite Eights, three Final Fours, something like that. And, yeah. and you know, not, the, not again, these are, I don't know if the numbers matter, other than to say, like, you can focus on process and be about excellence and you can still win, right? Because right. there's a tendency to get sucked into the whole thing that we got to win at all costs. Right. But... Yeah, I think over the eleven seasons, we won about eighty percent of our matches playing in the toughest league in the country, and yeah. and we did just fine. And and so, again, that all I'm saying is that lends credibility to maybe there's some to this. Maybe it's not just because yeah. yeah. it would be lame if I was just well, man. Uh, yeah, well, when we were in Beijing, we did this or uh, this time in London or whatever, and tried to regale them with uh, with these anecdotes and 
of of whatever I deem to be my successes. Of course, they're not. I was just a part of it. But yeah, the, yeah. the team was the one doing the work, right? And so it, that's why the book is about being a practical guide to actually doing it, not here's some cool stories about stuff that I did. That's a lame right, book. Right. This right, thing right. actually, I hope, has some soul. Yeah. yeah. You know, as a non-coach, the easy assumption is that it's all about just having the best players. And everything you're describing is, yeah, you had great players, you had great athletes, but what you're describing is all the stuff that comes in between. You know, it's it's the healthy side of of, of leading a team or coaching a team, not just the, we call the smart side. Well, and to that end, talent matters in sport. No question, as I imagine it does in business. You can't win the derby on a donkey, right? You need some thoroughbreds. And to that end, that talent, uh, as you get further up, you know, I use this analogy of food chains, but as you get further up the food chain, everyone's an apex predator now. So being taller or faster or stronger or whatever, that's not a differentiating factor. That's no longer a competitive advantage. That's just the lay of the land. And so what I've found is that technical mastery is, you know, that idea of fundamental skill repeatability becomes this massive deal. And when you add to that, being able to apply the the mental game, uh, being able to be a good teammate, make those around you better, all that kind of stuff. You know, now all of a sudden you're starting to create some synergies around stuff other than talent. But, but oftentimes the narrative is, Hey, if you've got talent, that's enough, but it's not. Talent's not that rare. There are lots of people and you'll find them, any number of places that'll tell you how good they could have been. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a little bit like executives saying they're really smart. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. the executives that so. your competitors are really smart too, you know? So what's yeah. well, going to well, make us different here? Well, and, and you know? James, yeah. you know, we talk about this a lot. We have lots of clients that they, they're just constantly trying to hire the best and brightest from the best business schools, from the best consulting firms, from the best, you know, analysts and and we see them struggle as much as everybody else like you got a really smart team they're really gifted they have the best degrees what we don't know is can they actually work together can they become cohesive can they be clear can they be aligned will they yeah. take sacri- will they make sacrifices for each other yeah yeah this goes along something else I wanted to ask you about, Hugh, which is like what oozes out of the book during those interviews that you have. I just love them is this humility on the team and of those players. And, and I remember like you, you afforded me the opportunity again. You probably don't remember this, but when you were training with the women's team, national team in Miami, and I was coaching a, a high school group a club you allowed us to come in and watch your practice. And, um, and then after the training was over, the team came over and talked to our players, you know, and it was just super cool. And they were really, they were going out of their way to connect with our kids, you know? And, um, and then in this book, it's like, you know, Reed pretty or Loy ball or any, any of the players in there, you were, you were praising them for, some like mental evolution or, you know, a a change in their thought process or a change in, you know, how they were going to lead. And they didn't really take it. And instead they like praised you for your leadership and you didn't really take it. You praised it. Just how did you go about like building that, that culture of humility within the teams that you led? I I don't even know if that's a word I've ever used to, to describe it, although I understand why you're saying that, it, 
I guess from maybe it, maybe it feels or it felt more like gratitude or sure. respect or something like that to the point where, yeah, the, the interviews, yeah, I, I, I really liked adding that layer because it, it felt, again, if I was just going to tell you from the coach's side of it, well, that's only half the story. I thought it would be sure. compelling to see how those, how those things were received or those messages or those ideas, right? Yeah. But, well, let, let's look at Riley, right? R- Riley and emotional control. Yeah. Uh, he, he was one of the most important players for us in, in that 2008 campaign. Yeah. And uh, he took some phenomenal swings and, and both like big time cuts and just super smart KG, you know, just being a smart volleyball player. And, you know, who he was in, in Athens, maybe even into 2005, 2006, and then who he was in 2008. I mean, he just came such a long way. And for anyone to make that kind of change, it requires a high degree of trust. So I'm just always grateful that they trusted me enough to, to, to make those changes, you know, cause they could have been uh, like, Hey, screw you, whatever. You're a random guy from New Zealand. What do you know? Right. <laughs> but instead they, they were like, Hey, no, I, I can see it. And, and let's, let's work through it together. So that's why I'm always trying to express it from, from that perspective. And I think, again, I, you know, maybe it's better to ask them, but it feels like a lot of times when I'm with those guys, just the fact that I was a, well, that I was prepared to meet them where they were and, and see them as people, not just as competitive commodities and try to invest in their development, not just in, in their skill development, but try to help them a- around the game, not just in the game. Maybe they felt there was something to that and, and, and connected to that was this idea of like, Hey, we're really going to try to do something great. And, and as even though there were tons of ebbs and flows, right? There were there were all kinds of ups and down, ups and downs. Once we got grooving, I mean, it was pretty cool. We we were we were pretty good, and and, and I think it's safe to say we were maybe we were the best team in the world in two thousand eight. Like I, I I don't think it was a blip. I mean, we just won World League, and and we were doing pretty good. So yeah, it was kind of cool to to go through that journey and then come out the other end and feel like we'd actually achieved what we set out to do. So to your question, it feels like there was just a really good amount of, yeah, respect and, and, and we're in it together and we're connected and we're doing all that stuff. And so however they gets expressed, I don't know. I want to tell them how great they are and maybe they want to tell me I did an okay job too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Along a similar line, I think one of the, uh, one thing I'm super curious about is when you started coaching with Karch, Karch Karai. Yeah. yeah. And for those of you who don't know, Karch is probably like the Michael Jordan of USA Volleyball and won two Olympic indoor medal, uh, gold medals, won a outdoor beach gold medal, and just an amazing player. Yeah. And he was your assistant. <laughs> yep. And and what was that like for you? That would be that seems like it would be intimidating. But what about Karch made it easier for you? Well, I think it could have been. You're right. Had we not won won the gold, uh, you know, maybe it could have been more intimidating. But at least we were able to connect on on that level. And there is a certainly a humanity to Karch that's that's real. And uh, you know his he could understand better than most uh, the magnitude of what we'd achieved. And so I think that 
probably earned some respect from from his side and and uh you know as as you said his resume is is uh fairly impressive as well so there's a lot to respect there and i think when you start from that position of mutual respect then then it's easier to move forward but i don't think there was a ton of ego involved in either side of it and he was very clear about hey i get it i did these things as a player i, I i'm still learning to figure out what it is to to do this whole coaching thing and and you know, I, I just thought that it was important to have someone that had been so so instrumental in the growth of the game in our country, and and who had expressed such a strong interest in coaching, to to try to give it a shot. Yeah, we often deal with, as I said earlier, like executives who you know are pretty have a pretty strong opinion and tie a lot of their you know, their ego is tied up in like what they've accomplished and the function they lead and meaning like, okay, I've led this department or this function. I've done it well. I have some gravitas, you know, my influence should be greater. And there's nobody who had, you know, more of a, could have had more of an ego in your world than Karch. And yet he was still like, super open-minded, curious, and, and checked his ego at the door. It seemed you would know more, but I, yeah, no, no, it was, I mean, there was, there was uh learning and, and yeah, there was ebb and flow like everything else, but it was always like, Hey, we're trying to, we're trying to win a gold. Now we're trying to win a gold medal in London. And, and yeah. again, clarity of purpose. And, and I, I thought it was great. You know, we worked hard and we did our best and yeah, it's unfortunate. We couldn't, I mean, we got a silver and, and we were number one in the world th- at that time. And we'd won the last three Grand Prix and we'd beaten Brazil the last six times we played him. So we weren't able to beat him seven times out of seven. It's, it's a bummer, but you know, there you go. It's not like, again, it's not like we were chopped liver. It was a good run. And, um, you know, I was certainly happy that he was able to keep, keep it going. And, and, uh, you know, and obviously again, express it in his way, do his thing. No problem. But, yeah. but it's been great. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Keith, I've kind of been taking over. So what question? I know you're chopping no, at the bit. No, no, this, this is good. I mean, Hugh, we, we often uh, say to leaders that, you know, we, we, this phrase that we use that uh, the, the, best, the best leaders have a leadership philosophy and they can, they can teach it to others. And I, I'm, maybe you've thought of it in those terms. I mean, you wrote a book about it. But, you know, if you could just summarize and maybe a couple of what are the top phrases that comes to mind? Yeah, how, how would you capture your leadership philosophy that you've tried to teach others? Well, one of the, one of the definitions of leadership that I express in the book that I like is this idea that it's authentic influence that creates value, right? Kevin Cashman says that, and I, I like that. Uh, one, the idea of authentic, because you got to be you, right? To thine own self be true. And just that idea that you're adding value, that you're there to make things better than you found them. I think that's important. We all want to leave it better than we found it. For me personally, having having had the privilege of working with all of these different populations at different levels, I think the, the main leadership idea or, or or lesson is that that it's up to it's up to the the leader to figure out how to make it work. I think there's there's a tendency as as the leader to, to get or subscribe to something a little more dictatorial in terms of your methodology. And I think what, what probably is a more effective way is to meet people where they're at and here are these principles I know I'm going to apply. But for example, I've been coaching college women and, and at one point I coach college men, but let's use college women. So, 
I'm in moderate age. They're 18 to 21. The idea that somehow, you know, they're going to have the emotional range or the capacity or the bandwidth to, to adapt to whatever it is I want to do. Well, it's unlikely. Now, I'm not going to be an 18-year-old female either, but I can certainly, I, I've got more range to to figure out how to connect with them on their terms than somehow mandating that they connect with me on my terms. So just, and I don't think, think that's anything other than kind of a bend don't break thing, you know, where, where you can, you can find ways to connect and find points of connection with them versus waiting for them to figure it out and come to you. So I, I don't know if that's wrapped up in uh, adaptive leadership or, or, that idea that we're, we're here to, as a service provider, which to me is different than servant leadership. Service provider is, hey, I'm, I'm here to help you get the job done. We all have to do it together. And I, I, this is what I can do to help you. I can, you know, it's like I got a toolkit and I can use different tools in different ways with different people, right? So yeah. that's the idea versus like, hey, I got a hammer and every one of you better be a nail. Right. Yeah. Exactly. We, we, we meet so many leaders who are half of a leader. And what meaning they know how to be decisive, they know how to have high expectations, they know how to be demanding, but they don't have the ability to, you know, ask questions and learn and be curious and meet people where they're at and and be adaptable. And uh, so I, I I really appreciate your just modeling what that looks like to to be two sides of a leader. And it strikes me that that's something that has just been almost effortless for you as a, you know, the, the work is hard, but the style of leadership seems like it's just an outflow of who you are as a person. And yeah, that's, that's yeah. super, I, I don't super know enough helpful. To know, Keith, it, it just made sense to me. Like it just seemed really logical <laughs> and, it, and it worked, it worked all right. So I just kept with it, you know? <laughs> that's great. Well, this is probably a good time to wrap, but. Hey, Hugh, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure and we really appreciate your time and, and wish you all the best with the book and the influence that book will have and also all the best in your new role at University of Minnesota. Yeah, thanks a lot. I really appreciate yeah. it. It was a pleasure to talk with you both. Yeah, yeah. sky you so much. There you go. <laughs> go Gophers, yep. All right, thank you. Yep, cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Org Health Advantage. Your hosts, Keith and James, are helping leaders change the world of work and invite you to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. For more resources on building stronger teams and organizational health, check out tablegroup.com. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.